Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And my name is Christian Sager. Hey, Robert, would you read a book if you knew that it was bound in human skin? Ooh, that's a that's a tough one. Because what if it was bound in my skin? Well, I'd feel, I'd feel even more weird about it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> because I, I like to be, I like to take care of my books and be respectful to my physical books as much as possible. Sure. And, uh, if it's a really nice book, there's a lot of pressure, right? You, you don't want to bend that fancy cover. You don't want to just leave it sitting around. Right. And if it's bound in human flesh, I feel like I've got to go above and beyond. I've got to get a special, upkeep. yeah, I've got to get a special jacket for it. I've yeah. got to perhaps put moisturizer on it. I don't know all the rules because I don't have any books bound in human flesh. One of the things that I heard and read Mm -hmm. during our research for the episode that we are about to conduct was that apparently human skin is like any other leather bound book. And as long as you just keep it at like a moderate temperature should Mm -hmm. be okay. And for the most part, the libraries and archives that have them, you know, they have them obviously they're in special collections. They're kept away. They're behind glass or they're, you know, in boxes somewhere, but they're, they don't need like any special, I don't know. It's not like, like you need human skin spray to wipe <laughs> down your book with, right? Yeah. Cause it, it basically comes down to the reality that, that human hide is just another hide. Yeah. Uh, granted, it's one that has a lot of, a lot of personal, um, uh, value attached to it and a lot of, uh, a lot of taboo, uh, energy. Uh, uh, associated with with its use, uh, but it's ultimately not that different from any other animal skin. Yeah, really, it isn't. Um, and so we're going to talk about this today because there's a weird history behind it, but also there's a new science that's popped up in the last two years to confirm whether or not a book is actually bound in human skin. And you may be sitting out there listening to this and saying, surely that's not really a thing. (laughs) And, you know, we've all heard of these kinds of books in horror movies or something, right? Like the one that I immediately think of is the Necronomicon Ex Mortis from Evil Dead, uh, infamously bound in human skin. But uh, what others? Well, well, this one's interesting. Because, of course, it, you know, it's very much bound in human skin in the Evil Dead movies. Yeah. But the Necronomicon, as it originally appears in H.P. Lovecraft's writings, right. I don't believe was ever mentioned as being bound in human flesh. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, there's only one reference I could find. Maybe some uh, some other Lovecraft readers out there can uh, can correct us. But the only uh, story I found where he makes a reference to a... a a, a book bound in human skin is his 1924 story, The Hound, that includes uh, uh, this description of kind of a, an occult stash. Statues and paintings there were, all of fiendish subjects, and some executed by St. John and myself. A locked portfolio bound in tanned human skin held certain unknown and unnameable drawings, which it was rumored Goya had perpetrated but dared not acknowledge. So there's one reference to a, a book bound in human skin. But for the most part, like I, it's something that turns up in, mm. in horror fiction sometimes. Uh, in Stephen King's eyes, the, the eyes of the dragon, uh, the flag character reads from a book of uh, that's bound in human skin. It's implied that this might be the Necronomicon. Okay. But for the most part, I, I couldn't run across any specific examples of like old school 
horror fiction and weird fiction that had much yeah. in the way of hu- of human flesh bound books. I I couldn't either. The only one that popped into my head and I couldn't confirm it by quickly looking up this movie was The Ninth Gate. Do you remember that Roman Polanski movie oh, with yes. Johnny Depp? And he had he, he was like uh, traveling around the world to get. I think there were three copies that he had to confirm if they were real or not. That were these books that you basically used to summon a portal to hell. Uh, yes, you're speaking of. Uh, the Book of the Nine Gates to the Kingdom of Shadows. Ah, okay. Uh, the, the the book that this was based on was The Club Dumas by Arturo uh, Perez Reverta. And, oh, yeah, uh, yeah. I read this many years ago, so I've forgotten most of it, but I remember it being pretty fun. Uh, I looked back in it a little bit for this episode, and I it, it, it appears that in the book, at least, uh, it was bound in um, 17th century Venetian binding. Oh, okay. And there were three copies of this 1666 demonology text. 1666, very yeah, nice. It was a good year for demonology text. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> but three of copies survived the Inquisition, and in the uh, the story, um, two of those copies contain elaborate forgeries, so you only have one right. volume that will actually work. The others, if you try and follow the, the various demonic summoning, uh, consulting uh, spells, you're going to do it wrong and you might die yeah that's an interesting little movie i've heard the books are much better too but the the movie it's not a great movie but i weirdly come back to it every couple of years no it's it's uh i have to say that the book might be bound in human flesh in the movie because okay. i know that the movie kind of played up some more of the demonic and horror themes yeah yeah whereas the book kind of kept a distance from some of that stuff but the, the yeah. movie's a lot of fun yeah, yeah, it's got that scene with the the woman in the wheelchair. That's what I always think of when I think of that. Movie. Oh, I don't remember that at all. She kind of, she's she's dying and she's just kind of like flailing around in like a one of those uh, powered wheelchairs. It's it's pretty brutal to watch. Huh. Yeah. Anyways, so speaking of brutal, how about some books bound in human skin or just skinning humans? Yeah, because that's really where we have to to come back to. Uh, but before we get into the the, the utilization of human flesh. Uh, in book binding, we have to go back even further. We have to go back far before we were binding books at all and just talk about, well, what's the history of just pulling flesh off of people? And do you want to share a fun fact with our audience that oh, yeah. we learned when we were putting the notes together for this? Yeah. So if, if you, uh, if you see this phase of stuff to blow your mind as, uh, as phase three, which, um, I, I guess I'm, I'm now thinking of it as, uh, phase four is when we're all robots. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> this is the, this is technically the fifth episode of the podcast to discuss human flaying. We uh, have, uh, Jeff the Killer episode, the, uh, incomplete unfinished episode, uh, the Mandela episode, the human remains episode, and Cobra effect and the horrors of scalp hunting. And don't forget mind flares. They don't flay skin, but oh, they flay right. brains. I about that. There is a yeah. at least the word flaying. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's it's uh, five point five. Yeah. <laughs> so the just the the flaying of humans, as barbaric as it is, has been around for quite some time. Um, I was looking at one particular text uh, when we were, when we were researching this, and this is an older. Uh, publication, but it was uh, from Lawrence S. Thompson, uh, writing for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in 1946. He has this whole uh, um, uh, paper, this whole chapter, tanned human skin, and uh, he he says that the the mere tanning of human hides obviously goes back much further than bookbinding. Uh, for instance, uh, Herodotus wrote about uh, the the Scythians and their uh, cultivation of this art, if you will. Uh, in Saxon uh, Britain, uh, certain offenders could pay hide geld for their crimes. So I guess that would be you know, essentially paying. 
So you would still be alive, but you would give parts of your skin or it would be like a, I'm going to be executed, but in payment, you will be able to take my skin. Um, I'm not, I'm not certain on this because on one hand, I'm, I'm wondering if it's, if it means that you would pay a little actual geld so your yeah. hide would not be taken. Oh, there or you go. if it's okay. kind of a, um, you know, you're basically paying for your, your crimes with a piece of your skin. Mm. Um, also, he also mentions that Danes who committed sacrilege in churches, uh, could be flayed and their skins nailed to church doors, which seems, Seems a little, uh, sacrilegious to put a human skin on a church door. It seems like you're, you're punishing the crime with another crime. But, right. But that's just my modern sensibilities, I guess. Well, and that's what we're going to learn in this episode too, is that a lot of this comes down to what is taboo nowadays versus what was 200 years ago, 300 years ago and further back. Really, we're talking about the medieval and renaissance period when this was at its height. But yeah. the last, I think the last recorded one was in the late 19th century. Yeah. I'm, and then one of the things too about human flaying in general is that, yes, it undoubtedly has happened uh, and it has been the practice of different cultures at different times. But on the other hand, it is hard work. It's, it's grisly work and Sometimes just the idea of it taking place picks up steam and becomes part of the myth, yeah. whereas it might not, and it might not have actually happened. Like, for instance, there's a legend of, uh, Jan Zika, the, um, the, the Hussite military commander, and he apparently his, the legend is that his dying wish was that, uh, drums may be made from his, uh, his skin so that he could continue to lead his troops <laughs> in battle in some fashion. And, you know, who, who knows if, that, <laughs> if there's any truth to that at all, but the, the story, uh, certainly resonated with everyone. And that's kind of part of what uh, this this new scientific practice is all about, because there's so many stories and legends about, oh, this book is bound in human skin. And, you know, you can't really tell at first glance. And we're going to talk about why. But uh turns out, like a lot of these old archives, when you actually test their books, they don't always turn up as actually being made of human skin. Sometimes they're just sheepskin or lambskin mm-hmm. or cow or deer or something. Right. I mean, in some of these accounts, even books that that definitely are made of human skin, uh, they have been described as looking like they're made from pig skin. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah it, 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 so much of it is just your expectation of and your your. You know, what you're, you're thinking about is the story regarding this. I think book. it definitely has to do with the tanning process too. As we go mm-hmm. through some of the examples throughout this episode too, like some of them, you look at them and you go, Oh, that's a part of a human being and others you have no idea. So then, you know, I'm assuming like myself, many of you out there might not actually be familiar <laughs> with the process of tanning and tanning human hides is essentially similar to how you would tan other hides, but let's go through it real quick. So, there's many that are bound, many types of books in particular that are bound in human skin it can include prayer books, astronomy treatises and court cases, and then definitely anatomy texts, yeah, which strikes me as being very meta, very <laughs> wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Uh, but the official name for this type of book binding is called anthropodermic bibliopegy uh, or pagey. It was mostly done in the 17th and 18th centuries, and it was primarily by physicians to bind their anatomy texts. Uh, and in these cases, it was usually human skin that was claimed from medical cadavers or criminals that were sentenced to death. But sometimes their skin was also used to bind the record of their trials as a form of punishment after death. And we'll explain why in some of the examples. Uh, it was supposedly, this is a rumor, I think, popular during the French Revolution. Uh, 
where there was, quote unquote, a fresh supply of bodies available. Yeah, I was actually reading about the the French Revolution tie in. And apparently uh, royalist propaganda from the time claimed that the that revolutionary leather goods were generated by a human leather tannery. Okay. Like there was one place in particular, I think, in uh, uh, Mudon. Uh, M-E-U-D-O-N. I'm, I'm not that uh, great yeah, with the, the me French. either. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, that was the propaganda going around. Oh, these revolutionaries, all of their leather comes from human flesh. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, we're, we're going to have an example coming up that is of a Marquis de Sade book. So maybe, and that was right around that time-ish. So maybe that's possible. Um, it turns out, too, that sometimes these books were bound in human skin out of affection for the author. Now, oh yeah, there's at least one interesting account. Of yeah, this. this is not necessarily that they've taken the author's skin and bound his book in it, although I think that might have happened too, but but more often that you send your skin to your favorite author after you die. <laughs> <laughs> you have you've paid ahead of time for the shipping. Uh maybe you use stamps.com to send your human skin. <laughs> uh, you know, I could understand that. I mean, we I feel like it a lot of us are reading ongoing series. Yeah. And the idea of dying before the author finishes that series can be a little uh, troubling. Right. So I could see like sending a piece of uh, your, your skin to say George R. R. Martin. Or exactly. Or yeah. Scott Baker or somebody and saying, look, I, I'm not going to survive to read your book. But if you could maybe if I could be there in some fashion. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that is that's how it went down. But, yeah, I mean, essentially what you do is you cure an animal skin when you're tanning you do it by soaking it in salt and then in water and then you treat it with various chemicals that soften it up and keep it from decomposing in some cases and in some of the human cases we're going to talk about uh urine is used mm-hmm. okay yeah because like we said uh, human skin is just another animal hide and uh yeah, there are accounts of tanners using human skin in book bindings and in these cases you can compare many of the cuts of human hide to pig hide right uh, the pores hair and in some cases the nipples can be telling yes but can it also just be easy to look at it and think it's just any other type of leather not something i ever really thought about before with just you know leather working in general mm-hmm. is like what what do they do about the animal nipples you know <laughs> like if i have a belt or i have shoes or or whatever like do they just cut around the nipples? Well, what do they do with the nipple parts? It's interesting that this would be pigs have a lot of nipples. Yeah, they do. They have they have quite a number of them. Yeah. It seems like with with actual leather work there's going to be a tendency to remove all aspects of the creature. You don't yeah. want to be reminded that this came from an animal. But in uh, many of these cases of human hide use, there is a deliberate uh, effort yeah. to make it resemble a, a person in some way, shape, or form. There's even one where there's an impression of the person's face. Oh, yeah. see? Grizzly. But yeah. that's like so Necronomicon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's a new show on the ABC family. So Necronomicon. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, Lawrence, Lawrence uh, S. Thompson in that, uh, that, uh, the writing that I mentioned. Uh, yeah. Uh, he writes about several non bookbinding uses of human skin from, uh, some of the, from this time period, ranging from, uh, slippers okay. to an alleged coin purse made from a human scrotum. Okay. That was employed by a burlesque dancer. Honestly, I'm not sure how much I buy that because symbolism aside, who really wants to lug around a scrotum, you know? Yeah, it seems like a lot of work, but it also seems like maybe it's like some kind of symbolic victory 
uh, over a, like, if she's a burlesque dancer, maybe it was like, it belonged to somebody who had wronged her. Yeah, I mean, the story of it makes sense. But at yeah. the end of the day, you're left with what sounds like a pretty ugly coin purse. Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess with any of these things, if it's, if it's made in a way to look like it was, it was manufactured from a human body, right. the, the, the appeal is going to wear off with most, uh, collectors pretty fast. Yeah. That's the kind of, this is, that's my two cents on it. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. You're not that wrong. <laughs> so why don't we take a quick break? And when we come back, we're going to give you just a, just a pile of examples to show you how real this is. Okay. We're back. So let's talk about some notable books that were bound in human flesh and why were they? All right. Uh, yeah. And before we get into them, I just want to drive home again the, the time frame we're looking at. Uh, so according to the late age of print, everyday book culture from consumerism to control by Ted Strifus, the binding of books in human flesh persisted as a practice from basically the late 18th century to, and he argues the conclusion of the Second World War. Huh. Okay. Now, He's like, he's largely uh, alluding to the allegations that uh, the Nazi doctors uh, used flesh in, in the construction of lampshades. Oh, right. Yeah. This came up a lot in the literature mm-hmm. and was kind of most of the writers who were focusing on the book binding were like uh, the lampshade thing is it, uh, is unconfirmed. Yeah. And it, been more importantly, it's it's not a book. Like right. to, Just to, to be yeah. very uh, uh, specific, uh, they're referring to a, lamp, a lampshade is not a book binding. Yeah. So um, so I don't know if that time exact timeline can uh, can really be trusted but you could basically say that 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 was probably the last time it some someone could have really gotten away with it in the yeah. uh, in in the 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 sort of uh, learned academic sense of it well buffalo bill too yeah yeah and um, and also as we'll discuss at the very end there are examples of modern uh Flesh usage in various art uh, projects, uh, the con- mm-hmm. construction of of tennis shoes made from human flesh, that sort of thing. If you follow yeah, the kind of social yeah. media feeds we do, you probably have seen examples. Of I this. feel like I shared this on stuff to blow your mind at one point, but there was this artist who made these shoes with human teeth. Yeah, that's uh, the one I'm thinking. Yeah, of, yeah, yeah, yeah. Those were really bizarre, but also, you know, for us and for most of our listeners, kind of cool to look at. Yeah, there was a there was a recent art project where someone was ta- was planning to take skin samples from the late fashion designer Alexander McQueen. Oh, right. Yeah, we clone talked that about into this. a jacket. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, but but even that, that's you're talking about cloning. You're ta- it's a modern spin yeah. on 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 this uh, this older method of bookbinding of utilizing human flesh in some sort of a, uh, uh, you know, quote unquote, practical sense. So uh, before I get into this, I want to note well, that one of my sources was from a blog by a woman named Dr. Lindsay Fitzharris. Uh, and she's a medical historian who specializes in the history of early surgery. Uh, and it's a fascinating blog. So if you like, this is the kind of thing you're interested in and you like what you're hearing here, you might want to go check it out because she's got just lots of entries on things like this. But let's start with Father Henry Garnet. Uh, apparently, he was a conspirator as part of the 1605 gunpowder plot. Uh, many of you will know this as now being memorialized as Guy Fawkes Day. He uh, conspired to blow up the Houses of Parliament in England and his uh, 1606 record of his offenses is bound in his skin. And this is the title of the book, A True and Perfect Relation of the Whole Proceedings Against the Late 
most barbarous traitors, Garnet, a Jesuit, and his confederates. Now, this is, you know, if you're one of our British listeners, you're probably well familiar with this. But for our uh, other listeners, <laughs> this is why Great Britain celebrates the 5th of November as Guy Fawkes Day. It's mostly popularized over here uh, from Alan Moore and David Lloyd's V for Vendetta, which was made into a movie a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. So you occasionally see folks wearing Guy Fawkes masks here, but it's really like for vendetta masks for them. Uh, Garnet himself actually wasn't active in the plot to do this, but he knew of it. And so he was hung and then he was drawn and quartered before his skin was removed. Now, one copy of this book, this is the one I was talking about, has been found with an impression of his face on the front cover. Oh. And it went for $11,000 at an auction in 2007. That doesn't seem like that much. To me, I don't know. I guess I'm not really in on the pricings of rare books, <laughs> especially like human skin books. But eleven thousand seems kind of low. Like that's less than a car. Yeah, I don't know. I guess you, you it's going to be awkward to read that book because if you're on the train with it, oh, yeah. people are going to be staring at the face. You're you can't, like, do you hold the nose when you've got the front yeah. cover open in your lap? If I'm it's a sure. big book, yeah. Do I want to even put it in my lap if it's got somebody's mm-hmm. face on it? I don't know. And you're really, you're just reading like 1600s legal records. Yeah. That it's, point. it's ultimately a boring book. <laughs> But the next one that we should talk about, and this is the fan one, is I like to call it the French Countess. Uh, this is the fan. So uh, she was a big fan of occultist astronomer Camille Flammarion, and she sent a strip of skin from her shoulders to him after she died from tuberculosis. And then he used it to bind a copy of a book on the description of the planets in our solar system. Yeah, it was... This was this was fascinating. Again, this comes back to this idea that, hey, I'm not going to be around for your next book. I love your work. Can you bind your next book in my skin? Uh, (laughs) And he did. And it was it apparently was even this is the kind of thing that happened today. It would be in all the headlines. Right. Yeah. And even at the time, people were asking questions. They're like, whoa, tell me more about this. And so Flammarion ended up uh, responding to one of these questions. And I have the letter that he wrote in response. Oh, okay. He says, My dear doctor, the story has been somewhat expanded. I don't know the name of the person whose dorsal skin was delivered to me by a physician to use for binding. It was a matter of carrying out a pious vow. Some newspapers, especially in America, published the portrait, the name, and even the photograph of the uh, chateau where the quote-unquote countess lived. All of that is pure invention. The binding was successfully executed by Engel, and from then on, the skin was inalterable. I remember I had to carry this relic to a tanner in the Rue de la Rene Blanche, and three months were necessary for the job. Such an idea is assuredly bizarre. However, in point of fact, the fragment of a beautiful body is all that survives of it today, and it can endure for centuries in a perfect state of respectful preservation. The desire of the unknown woman was to have my last book published at the time of her death bound in this skin. The octavo edition of the Terrace du Ciel, published by Didier, enjoys this honor. Your reader and admirer, Flammarion. So I, I didn't do a deep dive into Flammarion. He might be somebody we want to come back to at a later date because he, he reminds me of John D. <laughs> um, but apparently, like, when he was around, he was known as sort of a... I don't crank isn't really the right term, but he like 
he had like a lot of predictions based on like uh, his his observations of astronomy. And I think mm-hmm. one of them was something like Halley's Comet was going to crash into Earth and kill everybody or something like that. Like he had like a lot of like hmm. kind of apocalyptic, you know, scare tactics. Yeah, I don't know a lot about him either, but I do know this. Um, he believed that it was perfectly reasonable to, uh, use a woman's skin to buy yeah. the book. Yeah. I mean, a he, woman whose name he didn't know. Yeah. I mean, he makes kind of a, an interesting argument. He's saying, look, beautiful woman, she's dead. She would just be forgotten. Now she gets to live on as part of this forever. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, as, long, as long as the planets. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I don't know. All right. But so, it is interesting to hear the, uh, the, the, the author's take on this a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. Um, I can't believe you're able to dig that up. That's pretty cool. Um, so here's the Marquis de Sade book that I was mentioning earlier. Uh, if you're familiar with his work, it's, uh, copies of his work, Justine. Uh, so medical interns apparently supplied the breasts of deceased female patients to an English binder of erotica in the 19th century to bind copies of Justine. Uh, and this is so obviously more than one copy of Justine. And in one example, there is an intact nipple on the cover and the, the research article that I read about this had a picture of it. Um, but that seems weirdly fitting for the Marquis de Sade. Mm hmm. Yeah, I was reading about this as well. Apparently, um, and then you, you were able to uncover actual photographs of this. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because the way I saw it described was that the Goncourt brothers, who were French writers of the time, that they were kind of gossiped that interns in the, uh, the, this place, the Calmer, were, uh, were dismissed because of the delivered skin, uh, from breasts of female patients to the binder of obscene books in, uh, Faubourg, uh, Saint Germain. Okay. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, publisher Isidore Lazou claimed to have seen the 1793 volume, uh, that you've described here. Well, you know, this could be one of those examples where this is legend. I mean, of course, like, th- so Marquis de Sade is infamous. Mm-hmm. Of course, like, if you really want to, like, like, mark up the value on your Marquis de Sade book, <laughs> you say, oh yeah, this just happens to be made from the skin of, uh, of a mental patient's, uh, breasts. Oh no, they weren't mental patients. They were just deceased patients. The mental patients come later. <laughs> um, but you know what I'm saying? Like, th- this would be one that would be great to test if they could ever, uh, you know, uh, get it over to this team of scientists that we'll talk about later. Indeed. Now at this point, a number of our American listeners are probably thinking, oh man, you- Europeans, of, of this time period were just, were just kind of awful. Yeah. Uh, Americans would never engage in this sort of, uh, bizarre, uh, <laughs> book collecting, uh, grotesquerie. Not true. We've got James Allen, who went by the alias George Walton, and he was uh, from my home state, Massachusetts, or at least that's where he died. Uh, he was a 19th century criminal who willingly donated his skin after he tried to rob a man on the mass turnpike. His victim fended him off. Uh, so Allen, when he was captured, requested that his skin be used to bind a book of his crimes that was given to his victim as a, quote, token of his esteem. Huh. Uh, and this is on display at the Boston Athenaeum Library. Uh, another book from his skin went to his doctor, apparently. So he had he had enough left over. He just said, give some here, a little bit here. I hope everyone is real. Like the, the, the big message that I got from the research was just how normalized. Yeah. This was granted, not among everybody, but in certain circles, it was the kind of thing where you get arrested and be like, oh, yeah, I want my skin to bind uh, this book and that book. Like today, no one would yeah. do that. You, you would just you would just be considered a complete wacko. 
but I mean, it maybe you were considered a wacko at the time, but you were considered a, you know, an acceptable kind of wacko. Yeah, an eccentric. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I don't know. I kind of wonder, like, uh, if any of our pathologist friends are out there listening, it, <laughs> if you are used to dealing with the dead and you're handling them and you're opening them up and you're doing autopsies, you know, I wonder how much further down the road it really is to take the skin off. I mean, the tanning process seems to be the hardest part about that. Although I've, you know, I've never actually removed somebody's skin, but mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying? Like, like I, I think like once you've already gone down the path of being uh, someone who conducts autopsies on a regular basis and you're just sort of used to the dead human body being an object and not a person. Yeah. Maybe it's not that far removed to say like, well, we might as well get some use out of this. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think that's a, a perfectly uh, valid point here because yeah, you're either going to be a tanner who is, yeah. who is, uh, who's engaging with the uh, hides uh, all the time, or you are a doctor who is dissecting criminals and, and, uh, and, you know, deceased patients. Yeah. That's what it seems like. Uh, another, and so this is a, a Famous example, but also a good example to give us an idea of why these were conducted the way they were. And it is Burke's Skin Pocketbook. Uh, this is the notorious Scottish murderer, uh, who, uh, committed his crimes between 1827 and 1828 with his, uh, associate Hare. So Burke and Hare. I think that's a movie, right? Yeah. There was a Simon Pegg. Simon Pegg and Gollum. Yeah. Simon Pegg and Gollum. I haven't seen it. What's but. Gollum's real name? I feel bad. Andy Circus. Andy Circus. Yeah. yeah. Uh, those guys played the, these characters. I wonder if in that movie version they show the book at the end. But, uh, so these two killed 16 people. And the reason why was to sell their bodies to an, uh, anatomist. Uh, Burke was hung and then dissected and his skin now binds a book at the Surgeon's Hall Museum in Edinburgh. Uh, it, this book is described as being dark brown, almost black. And honestly, it's not really a book. Uh, it's really kind of a wallet for personal notes and money. There's no paper between it. Uh, and why was, why was this done? We're starting to see a pattern here, right? Well, apparently there was a law called England's Murder Act of 1751. And this stipulated that not only would a murderer be executed, but they couldn't be buried. So they were like, well, what are we going to do with all these bodies? So they, what they would do is they would usually dissect them sometimes in, in public, you know, as kind of a, a lecture hall series or something like that. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they hung the bodies in chains, but some like Burke were made into book covers. Uh, so there you go. Another one of these that's kind of similar is, uh, at the Bristol record office. It's a, there's a book there that accounts the first man to be hung at Bristol Gowl. Uh, I think that's how you pronounce it. I, I guess over here we'd call it gallows. Uh, it's a guy named John Horwood. Now the story goes Horwood was 18 years old and he was infatuated with a woman named Eliza Balsam and he threw a stone at her while she was fetching water and then he quote beat her skull to pieces. Uh, ditto same as Burke. He was dissected during a public lecture and then his skin bound the papers about the case. So that's another place where apparently you can, you can see some of these. Now here, this next example is one of the most disturbing for me. And it's right here in the U.S. of A. And you can, in fact, uh, see these books at the Mutter Museum. Uh, the Mary Lynch books, as they're called. So Mary Lynch was a 28-year-old woman 
who died from tuberculosis and parasitic infection trichinosis in 1868. She'd been in this hospital care facility for six months. And the physician who did her autopsy needed to rebind his trio of anatomical texts on human reproduction. That's how the story is first portrayed. But then I read multiple articles about this and, and got the full story. So basically what he did was he's conducting her autopsy. He takes a section of skin from her thigh. Then he tans it in the hospital basement. But he didn't at first repurpose it for these book covers. Mary apparently only weighed 60 pounds at the time of her death. Uh, it, it was apparently a gruesome affair. He tanned her skin using a bedpan, and they think it might have been filled with human urine instead of the usual, uh, you know, salt and, and chemicals that were used. Uh, and they say this would have taken two weeks to a month. This guy was only 23 years old at the time. But wait. <clears throat> He holds on to her skin until 1887. So 19 years later, uh, he decides I'm going to bind these anatomy books up. Uh, and the three volumes are now in the Mutter Museum. Uh, some speculate that the treatment like this shows an example of how doctors at the time saw themselves as being social superiors to their poorer patients. Uh, and he also published her autopsy in the 1869 issue of the American Journal of Medical Sciences. And apparently it included this very uh, gruesome graphic that depicted the number of parasites that were in her body during the autopsy. Hmm. So this just sounds, this sounds very morbid. Yeah, there is this sense, you do get a strong sense of, of physicians here who have a godlike complex <laughs> mm-hmm. about their, their powers over the human body. And, and certainly uh, to your point, their, their social superiority to the poor patients. Yeah. Yeah. This is the kind of thing that like, it's funny. Cause like, that's a, a, a stereotype I think of when I think of like the 19th century medical man, you know, mm-hmm. um, but that's mainly from entertainment. You know, I'm yeah. thinking of like, I don't know, Penny Dreadful, right? Like doc, Dr. Frankenstein on Penny Dreadful or like characters and stuff like Deadwood or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like doctors just were a little quirky back then. At least that's what our fiction tells us. But then we well, look at examples same. like this. Yeah. Well, one of the things is you, our entertainment, of course we want our doctors quirky. Yeah. If I'm going to watch, you know, 16 hours about this doctor, he, he bet, he or she better be quirky. You right. know, that's one of the reasons I love shows like, like the Nick. I was going to mention Dr. Uh, Thackeray yeah. and that very quirky doctor. Yeah. I wouldn't want it any other way. But then you look in the, in the histories and you do find these real, um, eccentric, uh, spirits in mm-hmm. the medical profession. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that goes back. I mean, and that goes all the way back through ancient times and yeah. into the age of vivisection, et cetera. Well, and leads to us having characters nowadays like Hannibal Lecter. Yeah. You know, like that, it, it all kind of makes sense when, when you trace the history of it. Uh, another, uh, example you'll see a lot of here is a book called Destinies of the Soul. Oh, this is a good one. This is a book by writer, uh, Arsene Husay, I believe is how you pronounce it. Uh, and it was given to his friend, Dr. Ludovic Buland in the 1880s. Now, Buland is thought to have bound the book himself in the skin of an unclaimed female mental patient who died of natural causes. He apparently also bound a 16th century text on virginity in human skin, although we don't know where that human skin came from. So, 
eh, this guy's like setting off my my creepy meter. But these these books are interesting, especially well, really both of them, because these are the first ones that really feel like they could belong in a Lovecraftian yeah. library. Um, the the one book in particular, uh, Destinies of the Soul. 1880 focuses on the afterlife and theories of the human soul. And the book is inscribed with this. This book is bound in human skin parchment on which no ornament has been stamped to preserve its elegance. A book about the human soul deserved to have a human covering. I had kept this piece of human skin taken from the back of a woman. Yeah. It's, it's, Buland just really, of all the people in here, he's the one who really just kind of like squicked me out, uh, gave me a, what do you call it? Um, chill bumps. Yeah. Yeah. Now that would be interesting to have a book, uh, I guess a book of horror where not only is it bound in human skin, but you somehow get the chill bumps yeah, get on there. Goose, goosebumps. Yeah. You get a copy of Goosebumps bound ah, in human there you skin. Go. With goosebumps. There you go. Uh, so there's, there's lots of examples. Uh, Robert's got a couple more here, but the Mutter Museum, which is in Philadelphia, uh, at the College of Physicians, that's, that's a place where you can see a, a couple of these. We've mentioned this on the show before. There's even a librarian there who specializes specifically in human skin books. Oh, wow. Um, there's other places like California, Berkeley's Bancroft Library, Brown University, and the National Library of Australia. These are all libraries where you can go and ask to see these books. The one at Brown is the one that I heard was the last known to be made. It was apparently bound in 1893, although, you know, from what we're hearing, maybe there is also some later on up until World War II. Um, the binder, though, in 1893 didn't have enough human skin for the book. So what they did was they took the skin and they kind of halved it. The front half uses the outer layer of skin and the back and the spine are made from the inner layer of skin. All right. So I have uh, I have a list of some other books here. I am probably not going to mention them all. So let me just scan through and see which ones bear mention. Uh, there was an English physician, bibliophile and classist named Anthony Askew. In the 18th century, he apparently had uh, had one anatomy textbook bound in human flesh. Another English doctor, John Hunter, from uh, uh, more or less the same time period, he uh, had a uh, copy of the book um, Abelung über die Hautkrankheiten, uh, bound in, uh, quote, healthy cured human skin. No, at least it was healthy. Yeah, you want to make sure it's healthy. Yeah, you don't want, like, jaundice books. Yeah. And, you know, there are other accounts of 18th century doctors just handing off other weird things to each other made from human skin. Uh, French botanist, naturalist uh, Valmont uh, de Beaumaire reported that, that uh, famed Parisian surgeon M. Sue, I could not find any additional information on one M. Sue, but okay. uh, apparently uh, gave a, a pair of slippers made from human skin uh, to a museum and mm. apparently had given uh, the museum also a, a belt of human skin with nipples on it. Okay. Now, in an, an American example, uh, Joseph Leedy. Have we uh, touched on Leedy yet? No. Um, he had a copy of his own elementary treatise on human anatomy, 1861, uh, bound in flesh. Uh, the inscription inside reads, quote, The leather with which this book is bound is human skin from a soldier who died during the Great Southern Rebellion. Hmm. Uh, and by the way, in 1846, uh, Leedy became the first person ever to use a microscope to solve a murder mystery. Well, there you go. You know, he had all that experience <laughs> yeah. handling human skin, although it seems like the book was published after his microscope discovery. Uh, here's another curious uh, incident that came up. 
this was a young German law student named Ernst Kaufmann, uh, and he apparently lusted for fame, uh, and he made a collection of 200 woodcut cuts titled uh, Zwei Hundert Blumet Manner, and uh, he had it bound in his own skin after death, and it wound up in the library of Dr. Matthew Wood of Philadelphia. See, so I could see doing that. I could see, like, when I passed away, saying, like, I don't know, uh, put a copy of Stephen King's The Shining in my, my skin, you know, and get, and leave it to Robert Lamb. Like something like that. I, and I, it doesn't, that doesn't really bother me that much, but taking somebody else's skin, especially yeah. when they're your patient. Ugh. Yeah, that's where it gets, if it's purely consensual, <laughs> right. uh, then, yeah. I'm, then I'm fine with it. But it's, it, I get into a weird area with all these other uh, physicians we've been talking about. I can't help but just picturing Pinhead from the Hellraiser movies. Oh, yeah. You know, oh, what sights you'll see. Uh, now, um, here's another site. Uh, this one comes, uh, this was uh, the, the French apparently ordered the execution of a notorious criminal that was known only as uh, Campe, okay. uh, C-A-M-P-I. Uh, and he was to be flayed after death and the tanned hide be used to, quote, bind a volume containing the complete story of his life and exploits. That sounds a bit nuts to me, and there's apparently no evidence that this was actually carried out in a literal sense. Mm. But I guess it is kind of poetic, right? Because what are any of us but a, a book-bound in human there flesh? There you go. Or we yeah. like to think of ourselves This is that the way. thing. So what we're getting is like a lot of these are French examples. They're French physicians, and they love like the meta nature of binding books about anatomy or biology or human virginity mm-hmm. in human skin. Now, here's another uh, example that came from uh, that Thompson uh, source that I mentioned earlier. Uh, a bookbinder uh, reportedly prepared several human skin volumes for a Dr. V, uh, mm. this is another French uh, doctor, including a volume that had nipples on the front. And uh, V apparently was also uh, was a big fan of tattooed flesh, and he obtained human skin tattooed with two knights duking it out, and he ordered a copy of The Three Musketeers bound in it. Wow, I can't imagine how bad that must look because like, <laughs> you know, I've had friends who've, who've gotten kind of crummy tattoos in their twenties. And then like now we're in our forties going into fifties and it's like, eh, that's getting a little blurry, you know? Yeah. But then like you take it off and you cure it and tan it and go through that whole process. I can't imagine that you'd really be able to see the knights fighting each other all that well. Yeah. Like I remember seeing old Navy tattoos on, uh, on some, uh, some old guy's shoulders in church yeah. when I was a kid and you could basically couldn't tell what they were anymore. Right. Yeah. They're just like kind of blobs. So at, at, b- before we take another break and come back and discuss the science, I want to say that I feel like the more we looked at these examples, the more I felt like I was answering my own question about the lack of skin bound books in say the works of H.P. Uh, Lovecraft. Uh, because maybe even though there is one mention of a uh, tanned human hide in a book, like maybe he and other writers of his time were a little more aware of the fact that books bound in human flesh were not that were usually not that fancy. were not that occult and dark yeah. and secret of a thing. It was more this kind of boring, normalized thing that kind of rich uppity physicians did. Yeah. I, so, you know, from my knowledge of horror literature, the, the ones that immediately pop to mind and it, using the term literature is strong here, but the, the EC comics and the kind of creepy and eerie comics from the fifties uh, going oh, yeah. up into the seventies there, this was a common theme, I think because they're playing off the Burke and Hare thing mm-hmm. of like, 
you know, oh no, like, like there's a classic story, uh, that I think, um, Jack Davis drew. I think there was like a butcher who was like procuring dead bodies for a client or something like that. Or maybe it was like, you know, there were, there were multiple stories that were like this. Like one of them was like, uh, people who owned a funeral home and business was low. And so like, <laughs> so there were all these like weird stories of just procuring dead bodies for various menacing means. And oftentimes they end up as books or something like that at the end of these stories. But you're right. Like, the, that was like a good, I don't know, 30 years after Lovecraft was working. Yeah. So maybe you just had to, there had to be a certain amount of time that passed before this could become cool again. Right. It kind of like was outside of the popular consciousness. Yeah. yeah. That's my, that's just a theory anyway. Well, let's take another break. And when we get back, let's get into the science of how you actually figure out if your book is bound in human flesh. All right, we're back. So as we've discussed, human hide isn't that diff- different from other hides. And ultimately, if you have a book that is allegedly bound in human flesh, how can you tell? Yeah, well, the way to identify human leather, okay, first of all, it obviously has different pore sizes and shapes than a pig or calfskin, right? Apparently, it also has a waxy smell that is sometimes used to identify fraudulent books. But When human skin is tanned, its DNA traces are mostly destroyed, so it's much harder to identify a specific donor. Usually, historians have to turn to inscriptions and historical records, right? We've mentioned this with several of the examples. Like on Mm -hmm. the inside of the book, it says, yada, 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 this book was bound in so-and-so skin. Um, But when you really need to know, you get a scientist and you turn to a method called peptide mass fingerprinting. And this identifies proteins to create a PMF. That's a fingerprint, basically, that allows analysts to identify the source of the flesh. Now, at Harvard, they did this with uh, the Destinies of the Soul book we were talking about. And they confirmed, yes, it is human skin, uh, though there is a chance that it could be a closely related primate like a gibbon or a great ape. But it's definitely not sheep, cattle, or goats. So we'll get into this in a minute. But <laughs> but they can narrow it down to sort of like your the family. You know, even if the book were just bound in the hide of a of a gibbon, I mean that's still impressive. I think it would be creepy. Yeah, yeah. Um, they're ninety nine percent sure in this one case because they followed up the PMF with a liquid chromatography tandem mass spectrometry. Uh, and they did this to determine the order of the amino acids that are in the sample. These are basically the building blocks of each of the peptides that are different in each species. Harvard has done similar testings on books they thought were human skin, but instead they turned out to be sheepskin. And here's an example. Uh, there was this book that I, I, it's referred to the coloring as being, quote, subdued yellow with a sporadic brown and black splotches like an old banana. <laughs> and they thought it was human skin. It was supposedly the skin of a man named Jonas Wright, who was flayed alive by an African tribe who then turned him into a book. Uh, and it's a total fake. When well, they that did sounds fake. Like, cause yeah. when you think 
African tribe, um, you don't think, oh, well, modern European bookbinding. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. Like the minute I read about that, I was like, of all of these examples <laughs> here, that's the one that just sounds like kind of just like this racist stereotype example. Right. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of fakes out there, too, including one that was purported to be made from the skin of Christmas addicts. Uh, addicts being uh, an African-American man who was uh, one of the first victims, if not the first, at the Boston Massacre leading okay. to the Revolutionary War. Um, this is where we enter into the anthropodermic book project. So this is the team of scientists that I've been referring to. Their goal is to create a census of the alleged anthropodermic books in the world. Uh, and they say their method is easy, that it's inexpensive. In fact, it costs less than $100 per book, and it's authoritative. And they started in 2014. Their current count as of September 2016 is they have seen uh, examined 47 alleged books, 30 are in the process of being tested, 18 have been confirmed as human skin and 12 have been confirmed as not human skin. Huh. So the, the majority though. Yeah. Have, have turned out to actually be human turns skin. out. Okay. Yeah. Uh, they also, they use this PMF method that I referred to, uh, and they explain it further. They say the technique uses enzymatic digestion of extracted collagen to cut the protein at specific amino acid sites that form a mixture of peptides. And basically, they place the sample in an enzyme bath that digests the collagen in it down into peptides. Now, each mammal has a unique amino acid sequence in our collagen, so the mixture of peptides is like a unique fingerprint. Uh, they also use matrix-assisted laser desorption ionization Time of Flight Mass Spectrometry. Whoa. The acronym for that is MALDI. Oh, good old MALDI. Much easier to say. Uh, And they use this to analyze these peptide mixtures for specific marker icons. Now, this is what they say. They say they prefer the PMF method to DNA analysis because it quickly differentiates the hominid family from things like sheep, goats, pigs, cow, and deer, the usual kinds of skins that are used for bookbinding. It is very unlikely that a book from the 19th century would be bound in the skin of another member of the great ape family. So they feel pretty comfortable if it's an older, rare book Uh saying, well, if it's part of the hominid family, it's more likely that it's a human being than it is a a given. Yeah, because as we discussed, part of the whole reason for books being bound in human flesh is you had human flesh just sort of yeah. sitting around yeah, and people made use of it. How difficult was it to procure a gibbon back then? Yeah. You know, uh, so uh, they also prefer collagen testing to DNA because it lasts longer, especially if the skin is preserved through tanning or mummification. Uh, collagen is really tough and it can be analyzed long after death. So the thing that they point out here about DNA, this is something that Joe and I uh, talked about in our forensics episode, is that DNA can lead to false positives. For instance, like when a person is handling the book, maybe their DNA gets accidentally magnified, right? Uh, They do, however, recognize that PMF cannot tell whether the skin came from, for instance, a man or a woman, uh, where the person might have come from and who their relatives were, while DNA can. Mm. 
another method they discount is something called follicle pattern recognition. And the premise here is that human skin patterns are arranged in different shapes than other animals. Uh, so people would, you know, compare these patterns and say, well, that's human skin, that's sheepskin. Uh, they say, though, this is pretty subjective, especially if the pattern gets changed by processing, dyeing, and stretching of the skin. And they say they only need tiny, tiny samples. Something visible under 30 times magnification is sufficient material for analysis. And this is comparably the size of a needle prick. Uh, so what they do is uh, they began the ABP team uh, and they have been confirming books as not being human skin or being human skin. Um, one of the examples is the Biblioteca Politica that was at uh, Juniata College in Pennsylvania. And it was thought to be anthropodermic and it fascinated students, especially during Halloween. So they would come into the library. They'd, they'd want to all look at it after the PMF test, though. Turns out it was sheepskin. So not every institution actually wants to go public with these results. Some of them are hiring these folks to come in and do the tests, but they're not releasing the results because the mystery of the human skin bound books, you know, that's attracting visitors. Yeah, I mean, especially given how ultimately unimpressive some of these books are on their own. If right. you take away the, the the idea that they're bound in human flesh, what are you left with? Yeah, just some like uh, old court papers. Now, fast forward to to today, and uh, generally you're not going to find much in the way of human-bound books anymore. Uh, However, one interesting example that I came across was a proposal for a skin book made from synthetic flesh for aspiring tattoo artists. Oh. This was in the, apparently made the, the rounds in the news back in 2015. Tattoo Art Magazine commissioned a Brazilian ad agency to help bring this idea to fruition. Okay. And so the idea would be that they would have, it would, it would be a little, like a moleskin book, except it's human skin book, uh, with pages of yeah. human skin to, uh, you know, test out your, tattooing skills okay so like it it, the inside of the book is like your instructions on how to be a tattoo artist and then when you're practicing with your tattoo machine you're doing it on the cover of your book kind of like when we used to like as kids wrap Mm -hmm. our books up in grocery bags and we'd draw all over them uh no actually this one would have been like all the pages inside would have been blank pages of skin oh i think that that was the proposal oh wow okay okay now that again, seems like again, it would be quite is, a feat. This is like a lot of these th- these things that have come out, like the Alexander McQueen thing, where someone's saying, "Hey, we could do this. Let's do it." Uh, if it actually gets yeah. gets made, that's another thing. But it does it the 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 the, uh, the advancing technology of being able to you know clone human skin, grow human tissue uh, away from a human body. Yeah, it does bring the possibility of human bound books back. Like I can kind of imagine a future where you'll have special hardbound editions of certain books that'll come out yeah. and you'll be able to get it in. I mean, take, for instance, Stephen King, you mentioned earlier. Yeah. So one day Steve will not be with us anymore. It's not conce- It's not inconceivable that there will be a sample of his tissue somewhere and there will, and, and there will be a, there'll be, someone will be given permission to clone that tissue. Yeah. And you could buy copies. You could buy the Stephen King library. And and each book would be found like in Steve's skin. Those super, I, I don't know if you've seen these, those like super fancy cemetery dance editions of his books yeah. that are like, you know, really nicely bound. But yeah, like even further than that. Well, I mean, like given research that we've done for other episodes on this show, we're, we're 
not conceivably that far away from being able to 3D print human skin. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. I mean, as long as you're not, again, like my, my line is like, if you're taking it from somebody without asking them, that's not cool. I guess I'm okay with it if you're making human skin based on somebody else's DNA, but they're, they, you know, they don't have a say in it. I, that, I think I'm okay with that. And of course I'm okay. You want to take my skin? I, I got to think about this now. It's really got to change my whole will. Uh, what book's going to be bound in my skin and who gets it? Yeah, it's a tough decision. Like, do you want your own book bound in your human skin or is mm. that, is that being too Seems selfish? Seems a little pretentious. Yeah. So you got to pick something that you just really admire and you admire enough to actually have part of your body wrapped around it. Yeah. Well, we'd certainly love to hear from, uh, any of our listeners out there who have thoughts on that. What book would you, uh, would you uh, submit your flesh for? Would you want uh, uh, to be utilizing the binding for? Uh, we'd yeah, love what, to hear from you. What part of your body do you think would be best for it? I guess, mm. I, I guess that the the Mary Lynch uh, doctor maybe had it right. The thigh seems like a good place to start. Yeah, but uh, I, you know, I don't know. I've never really been in that situation. You know, earlier I know we talked about tattoos not aging well and and questioned what how how these books would work. Yeah. Uh, if it were possible to preserve it, uh, to, and, and I'm not sure how that really works, how the tiny, the tanning process affects tattoo quality, I could see tattooed flesh making for a nice book cover. On oh, yeah, yeah. Like if you took like a full sleeve, yeah, it, that could be really cool looking. So if you want to share your pictures of your human <laughs> skin bound books or uh, maybe your tattoos that you would like to use to cover some books with in the future, there are lots of places you can get in touch with us at. You can send us those. We're all over social media. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. We're on Tumblr. And we are on Instagram. And you can always visit us at StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's right. That's the mothership. That's where you'll find all the podcast episodes, including the various playing episodes that we mentioned earlier. Yep. I'll try and link to all of those on the landing page this episode, as well as some of the outside sources we've mentioned. And as always, if you want to just write us the old-fashioned way, we are at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 